The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And it wasn't that he was opposed to the war or anything like that. It was just that his memory of the war, the thing that he wanted to tell me first, decades and decades later, was this, right? And there's a way in which the the kind of public narratives of the war, right, are always going to be just completely at odds with the highly particular individual experience. You know, that goes for the, you know, sort of negative images of Vietnam, the more positive images of, of World War II and so on. When veterans come home, I think one of the things that you find is trying to talk about the war that you were part of and how you feel about it sometimes can become an exercise in navigating your way through those kind of long-standing cultural images about war and archetypes that we have that, that never really quite capture individual experience. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Friday, May 27th, 2022. I sat down recently with Phil Cly, the author of the new book, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless, Invisible War. Cly is a winner of the National Book Award for Fiction and a veteran of the war in Iraq. His latest book is a collection of essays from the past 10 years that deal with the consequences of America's endless wars. His essays cover a number of topics, ranging from the concept of citizen-soldier to a history of the AR-15. We talked about a number of themes in the book, including his experience as a public affairs officer in the Marine Corps, the way that America chooses to exercise its power, and the obligations of citizenship. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 27th, Phil Cly on Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. Phil, this book is made up of essays from the past 10 years. I'm curious, why did you decide to publish this now? So it felt as though it felt as though it was the right time, uh, to be perfectly honest. And I think that, you know, the last essay in the book is about the fall of Kabul. And it's it's not that that ended the war. So that's what Joe Biden promised us. So much as I think that marked a shift towards sort of complete shift towards a style of warfare that we've been sort of steadily moving into. You know, when I was in the Marine Corps in Iraq, I was part of a a large deployment of troops, ground troops. The main effort was conventional units. And and also a decent amount of the war was not was transparent to the to the average American. It was the subject of of a lot of political debate. And if you look at how we kill around the world now, how we wage war around the world now, our political te- leaders tell us that we're not at war, and yet we are killing people in a large variety of places: Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, Libya. There are other countries where it's not entirely clear uh, whether we're killing people there. I talked to one researcher in Amnesty International who said there are countries like Niger, Mali, and Nigeria where we know when U.S. soldiers die there, but we don't know when the U.S. kills people there. And it felt as though that transition and the way in which it sort of even further attenuates the link between the American public and the soldiers who fight for us and the killing that's done in our name, that's a major concern of mine. It was a concern of mine back in 2007 when I was in Iraq as a Marine. And it felt as though, you know, my kind of 
decade-long attempt to grapple with that question about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a veteran, what the wars signify, what they say about us, what their relationship is to American identity and, and, and the sort of arguments that we've had about American identity over, over the centuries and the ways in which those, they've been bound up uh, with war, that it felt like the right time to, uh, to gather these together and put them out. So the book is divided into four sections, soldiers, citizens, writing, and faith. Why did you decide to, to categorize the essays in that way? So <laughs> they're, they're sort of my four main central preoccupations, right? I mean, you, you, you come back from war, and there are two very immediate questions, right? What exactly was that war that I was a part of? And what exactly was I fighting for? And did we achieve it? And then there's, what is this country, right? What does it look like now? And the country that you come back to, it always looks strange. It's, it's you know, the, the veteran feeling estranged from, from the country that he came from is, is one of the oldest tropes there is. It's Odysseus coming, coming back to Ithaca and not recognizing the place and, and uh, only being recognized by his, his dog. And yet, at the same time, the decisions being made here in America determine what is happening overseas. And there's also that question of that idealism that you brought with you and what to do with it now that you're back in, in, in civilian life. And so that would be, I suppose, the citizen and the soldier side of those equations. And there's two other pieces. The, the, the section on writing, I mean, it's really about communication, right? In a very simple way. I mean, some of the essays are about great works of literature. And some of them are just about how we talk to one another. And I think that, you know, when you've gone overseas, when, when you've experienced war, you've been a part of something that feels very important, that's very at odds with people's normal everyday experiences. Sometimes we have this sense that, you know, you can't talk about these things, that only soldiers understand war and can talk about war. And yet you might not understand what you've been through yourself and you might need to talk it out. And I think that, our ability to talk to each other across difference. I think that our ability and our openness to each other and the idea that somebody who doesn't share our experience can nevertheless have a valuable perspective. The sense that we all have a stake in these wars and are empowered to talk about them. And that these experiences that are so central to soldiers are actually experiences that should be vital to all of us is I think a, a critical preoccupation for me I think it's deeply important for veterans on an individual level, and I think it's important for us in terms of a society. So, you know, they're the kind of moral and political issues, and then it's just the, the basics of how do we talk about these things, right? Because, because it's difficult, and yet so very important. And then faith is the, is the final section. And I think that, you know, there's a, a quote of Vietnam veteran who says, you know, he's talking about the old phrase, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. And that's not true. There, there are certainly atheists in foxholes. Some people are atheists because of what they experienced in foxholes. And yet it's not for him, he says, that, you know, war forces you to believe or not to believe. It's more that war can force a kind of existential choosing, Right. It can bring things to the fore uh, and make certain types of questions really, really important, right? Not just political questions or questions of military policy, but deep spiritual and moral questions. And that's my attempt to grapple with those things. I want to ask you about your time in the Marines as a public affairs officer, which you describe in the book. The job of public affairs officer is a very unique position, especially as you describe it in Iraq, because you were both, you know, you were in country seeing the consequences of the war itself firsthand and secondhand in some cases, as you describe in the book. But also you were sort of acutely aware, maybe more so than other soldiers in Iraq, of how the war was being portrayed in the broader news to the American public. Do you think that experience and that job is a sort of influence your writing? Because at least to me, it seems like a lot of these essays connect personal experience and details with those broader policy trends. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there were a variety of things that were important about that job. I mean, one was just, you'd spend time with normal Marines and, and soldiers, go out in a patrol through, through a village, spend time with engineers, spend time with mortuary affairs guys. 
And then you'd also spend a lot of time thinking about the sort of broader cultural narratives and political narratives about the war. Uh, you'd brief those to to a general. Uh, you'd meet with reporters and try and bring them in. And you'd attempt to serve as a kind of conduit between those two worlds, right? And, and have a good sense of, of each of those. And also a sort of sense that, you know, they are connected and that, you know, understanding those very particular experiences of soldiers is is important for understanding the, the sort of much broader projects that we're engaged in. Just as a as a former public affairs officer, I have to ask you, I've seen a lot of military reporters and journalists talk about the erosion of the journalistic embed system with, with combat troops. And do you think that sort of erosion is one contributing factor to the invisible wars, as you as you say in your title? Absolutely. The wars have become a lot more opaque, right? So, you know, sometimes people talk about the disconnect as, as a result of the all-volunteer military and, and, and the relatively few number of people who serve. And that's true. But the disconnect between the American citizen and the wars we fight is also the result of political decisions, right? It's the result of, of politicians telling us that we aren't at war when we're, when we're killing people all over the place, right? It's the result of Barack Obama and Susan Rice claiming that we weren't at war, that we had ended the wars in 2015 as we were ramping up involvement in Iraq. Uh, and Joe Biden, you know, declaring to the UN that he's speaking as, as, as for, you know, for the first time as the head of a nation that's not at war. Meanwhile, we're conducting targeted strikes around the world. Uh, and he just, you know, sent more troops into Somalia to continue one of those campaigns in a, in a conflict that Congress never voted on that's been justified using an authorization for the use of military force that we, was passed in 2001. And at the same time, not allowing transparency, one aspect of which is not allowing embeds so that we don't get to see the work that soldiers are doing, right? I think that this reliance that we have upon special operators drones, airstrikes, and mercenaries. I mean, there are certainly military and strategic reasons to rest on those tools, but I'm also very leery of the political convenience of those tools, of the fact that they're tools that are much easier to hide from view and much easier to tell the American public that they don't need to be concerned about. And I think that that's not good for our military policy, and I don't think it's good for democratic accountability, and I don't think it's good for us as a nation. So let's jump into to some of the substance of the book, and I don't want to give too much away, but there are a number of essays in here that appear to me at least to be stories of contradiction. And I'll give one example to our listeners, and I'll, mm -hmm. I want to sort of ask you about those, those contradictions. One essay opens with American doctors saving an insurgent who was injured in an attack that killed American soldiers, yeah. um, which was probably an incredible sight to see. But then... It goes on to, to you, you go on to discuss Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and how the U.S.'s moral reputation also ended up killing American soldiers. And there are plenty of other essays like that. And I was just wondering if you could talk about those contradictions in, in both your writing style and what you're trying to communicate to the reader. You know, I'm somebody who, who very much believes in, <laughs> in American ideals, in those you know sacred words that Ralph Ellison talked about liberty, equality, democracy, and so on, that, that uh, throughout American history, we're always eating and regurgitating and eating again, as he says. So, you know, in that essay, which is about how the military fights and the times when it lives up to the values that it claims to profess and the times when it terribly fails, right? And, you know, the story of, of caring for an insurgent you know, is, is, is one that always stuck with me. I remember talking to uh, the flight nurse for that insurgent because after he was brought in, you know, the doctors had tried to save this, this Marine and failed, which is just crushing to them. And while they're in that moment of, of loss, having failed to save the life of a Marine, they get word that another bird is coming in and it's got the guy who killed him. And they save that insurgent's life. And then this, this nurse was the flight nurse and he's the guy responsible for, you know, checking his vitals. And he's just sitting there in the back as they fly him to another level of care, taking care of this person who'd taken the life uh, of a fellow Marine. And, you know, I think that that is, that's an example of us just living up to the virtues, right? And values that we proclaim. And I tell a couple of stories that are related to that, which I don't think are just 
nice things that we do, right? I, I think having a professional military, a military that takes war crimes seriously, that takes its responsibilities towards the injured and wounded and, and, and enemy seriously, uh, can be an asset, right? And I sort of detail why. And then on the uh, on the other side, things like Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib was not just a, a moral disaster for us, not just a grave evil, along with our sort of torture regime in general, but just even from a totally amoral, strategic point of view, it was intensely stupid. It earned us legions of enemies. It earned us contempt. It hurt us in the world stage. It meant that our allies didn't want to share intelligence with us. It limited all sorts of cooperation in critical phases of the war. And so, you know, a military needs a kind of ethic in order to run. And yeah, that essay is is exploring the sorts of things that that that, that we advocate ourselves, exploring the places where we fail as well as the places where, where we succeed. And I think both are very important, right? And I think that's a that is a concern throughout the book. I think that, you know, American history is not one never-ending shining story of progress. There are decided, you know, moments in which in which we regress quite terribly. And I, I, I talk about some of those uh, in some of the essays. There's an essay centered around um, Charles White Whittlesey and his experiences right after World War I leading up to his death. But I think that that struggle, right, that recognition of, of the failures and the evils and the injustices alongside a kind of commitment to the ideals is an important part of American history and an important part of our contemporary reality. And trying to trace those and see examples of, of, of both of those in our, in, our, in our history and our contemporary reality certainly is, is a part of the book. And one of those, one of those uh, sort of along that same, the same lines is the legacy of 9-11. And you write at one point early on in the book that we shouldn't confuse the complex legacy of 9-11 with 9-11 itself. How do you think those two things often get confused in public discourse? And if you have any examples. I mean, just think of the political purpose that 9-11 served, right? The response to it was, was the launching of two wars and, and the initiation of a torture regime, right? 9-11 itself is where I talk about very particular and very individual experiences of, of loss and sacrifice and also heroism on that day. Also, you know, there's a strange thing where, you know, sometimes people talk about how together we were as a nation at that time, right? And they compare it to the kind of poisonous and divided politics of today. You know, and George Bush had an 85% approval rating and Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor. And yet that lack of division, right, that, that, that unity of purpose, you know, the ends to which it was directed were unbelievably destructive. And so I think it is, <laughs> this is one of the reasons why perhaps you see that I'm drawn to those paradoxes, right? Where, you know, my patriotism is very much about keeping my eye towards our failures and our backsliding. And I think the costs of, our use of the military and the way that we operate in the world that sometimes we don't want to see or we allow our politicians to obscure from our view. And one method that you write about in the book and you mentioned a little bit earlier by which politicians are sort of given a free pass on any oversight of these wars is that two, 2002 authorization for the use of military force, the AUMF, that a lot of lawfare readers and listeners are probably familiar with in a, yep. in somewhat of a technical sense. But you, you sort of bring it out to, to these broader themes and just overall anemic congressional oversight. You know, how, in your view, did that, did that result in, the, in you know, the poor handling of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? So the poor handling of Iraq and Afghanistan, in some ways, is, is about a time when they were subject to, to debate. I mean, I don't think the democratic debate necessarily gives you good policies, right? You know, the the case for the invasion of Iraq was made in, in the open and it was quite popular. So I don't see democratic participation as a cure-all 
I do think it's important. I think it's 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 morally important, and I don't think that we really have a hope of morally serious policy if we don't have accountability, right? I mean, it's, I mean, after the past twenty years, why would you just assume that people know what they're doing, right? <laughs> and that and that they're handling everything fine? There's no reason to think that, right? I very much doubt that a military policy where so much is in, is in the shadows and so much is determined by, you know, what is the least politically costly way of operating is necessarily going to lead to good outcomes or serious long-term strategy for very, very complex and violent regions of the world. And I'm deeply concerned about regions of the world where, you know, we have no idea what to do with the sort of broken government and shattered societies, but we do know how to kill people. So our primary engagement with that region is when we come from the skies and kill people periodically. I don't think that's a long-term recipe for success either. Nevertheless, you know, bringing things into light won't necessarily make things perfect, right? And I think that over time we do learn things. I think we have learned things about American hubris and, and lessons that we should have learned before from earlier wars, but had to learn again about how much can be actually achieved with the use of military power, and also about the second and third order consequences of violence, that you can topple a regime, but that doesn't necessarily solve the situation. Nevertheless, without greater democratic accountability, I don't think there's any real possibility for progress. One thing that I wanted to ask you about that you, you don't really touch on in the book is, and this might sound like a strange question, but is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR. Yes. That that institution, you know, people, some people compare Afghanistan to Vietnam and everything. And I think the Washington Post tried to, you know, draw out the Afghanistan papers as like a lot of, you know, this big revelation. There was some great reporting in that, but it seems like a lot of what they were uncovering, you know, had sort of been out in the public in, you know, Cigar's reports are open source in there for everyone to see. And so I'm yeah. curious about your thoughts on that as an institution of, of accountability or oversight. I think it's very important, right? I mean, it's made for depressing reading, you know, uh, when you're reading about, you know, the amount of money that we spent on buildings that literally melted when it rained in one of the, the examples that I particularly remember. Nevertheless, I think institutions like that are great and, and, and the public role that they played are, are fantastic. I remember, you know, cause we had the special inspector general for Iraq reconstruction as well. And, I remember speaking with a general who is extremely annoyed by their existence, but that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yes, definitely. I want to talk about sort of the experience of these wars and how that led to their portrayal in popular media. At one point, you quote Elizabeth Samet, a West Point instructor, and she said that because the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan essentially lacked a clear political vision and I'm quoting her here, that forced many of the platoon leaders and company commanders to understand the dramas in which they found themselves as local and individual rather than national or communal. You connect that idea to, to the popular depiction of these wars. I'm curious how you sort of arrived at that conclusion and, and maybe what that looked like in popular media. Yeah. So at a certain point, some of the missions that we were sending people out on just seemed almost obviously pointless. I remember there's a, a journalist in Afghanistan. This is during Obama's surge. And one of the Marines turns to him and says, this war is stupid. So what? Our country's in it, right? And it was the idea like, yeah, we know this is going to be totally waste of effort. As soon as we leave, the Taliban's going to come right back here. But, you know, I'm here because my country's in it and I'm going to do my best. and I'm going to take care of the Marines around me, right? And I remember speaking with a, a guy in special forces and he'd done deployment after deployment to Afghanistan. He was telling me, you know, every year we'd go into the same valleys and we weren't building schools or roads or government. We didn't have any money for that. We're just doing interdiction mission after interdiction mission, getting into these gnarly firefights with kids. Cause that's who the Taliban is sending against is kids. Right. And after a point, I was like, you know, we're like chewing them up because they're special forces. They have all the, you know, support and, and they're excellent soldiers. I said, I used to wonder why they would send them against us. And then I realized, oh, they're doing it because they can. And 
he described a kind of warrior culture, right? A kind of nihilistic warrior culture evolving. Because what else did you have if you didn't necessarily believe in the mission itself? And that's a terrible thing to ask of young men and women. And it's not really a surprise that in terms of pop culture, right, we don't really know how to depict these wars. They're not, you know, 20-year interminable wars with unsatisfying conclusions don't really lend themselves to, you know, movie and TV necessarily. And so all the really popular pop culture fare tends to revolve around special operators, right? Which is unsurprising. And I think that the kind of romance of the special operator, it, it has a nice narrative structure, right? There's a bad guy out there and a bunch of heroic, you know, Navy SEALs are going to train up and, and prepare to go out there and they're going to hit wherever he lives and they're going to kill him or capture him. And then that's the end. And that's got a neat narrative structure. It's got a beginning, a middle, and the end, and an end, which is exactly what these wars don't have, right? And yet it's the stories that we keep telling ourselves. And of course, you know, we tend to focus on uh, stories of the, the special operators. Drones uh, are probably less appealing, though, you know, in terms of how we do our killing, it, you know, a drone strike is not so different. Uh, it's just a different tool in the toolbox, right, in terms of, of targeted killings. And it's, you know, it provides us a kind of vicarious feeling of success that also bleeds into our politics. You know, I, I remember in, in Obama's last State of the Union address, he said something along the lines of, you know, if I don't, if you don't think I'm serious about combating terrorism, ask Osama bin Laden. You know, ask the guy who planned the Benghazi raid, right? Which is <laughs> not a response at all. If you think that I don't have a serious military policy, well, look, I killed some guys, right? Is not a response. And yet it feels like a response, right? Because it feels satisfying. And of course, Trump made a sort of similar argument with Soleimani. And, you know, when we killed Soleimani, it was a very delicate time in Iraq. I'd, I'd been there pretty soon before in, in December of, of 2019, uh, traveling through northern Iraq and also Baghdad. And, you know, there were these huge protests. It was, uh, you know, sort of causing a crisis in the government. It was a very delicate time politically. And when we did the strike, there was no concern for what it might do in terms of what what the mission was supposed to be in Iraq. It was purely about, you know, the guy that we killed and and our relationship with Iran and ultimately just became a sort of celebration of America's ability to do that sort of thing and a bragging point for President Trump. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, 
and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And that pop culture depiction, you uh, you talk a little bit about in the book to sort of rewind a little bit to sort of the fascination with World War II after the Gulf War. Sure. And I was wondering if you could just uh, to talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was growing up, you know, I, I was always a big reader. And when I read classic American fiction about war, you know, it tended to pre present war as, as horror and absurdity, right? You know, if you read like Company K about World War One or, or uh, Catch-22 about World War Two, you know, that's what the, the classic war literature has to teach you, right? You read Hemingway. But when you read the popular nonfiction at the time, you know, Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose and such, it was this kind of grand heroic struggle. And, you know, there's, there's, there's aspects of truth to both of that, but it's, it's, it's funny to think about the, the kind of narratives that we grew up with war because I met a World War II veteran at a D-Day party, sort of celebration of D-Day that a father of a friend of mine throws, reinvites these World War II veterans. And, and he was there. And when he found out I was a Marine, he, he said, oh, come over here. And he showed me a photograph. And it was a photograph of a woman dressed nicely with pearls and a, and, and a Panzerfaust, like a bazooka by her side. And he explains to me that he took this photograph on the day that the victory was won in Europe, right? The end of the European theater. And he had been taught how to develop film by a, a teacher in high school. And he brought a camera with him into the European theater. And wherever they, 
they went, he took photographs and, and, and when they stopped in towns, he'd, he'd gather the materials he needed and develop film and upturned helmets. And he has this incredible, you know, bunch of photographs from the war. And he later went on to be a, a, a well-known fashion photographer in his civilian life. But this photo, the one photo that he wanted to show me, was of a woman's corpse. And he explained that she'd come out with the Panzerfaust to try and, you know, shoot an enemy tank, right? To, to die for the fatherland on the last day of the war. And the troops had shot her in the stomach and then raped her and mutilated the, the, the body. And he had found this and was horrified by it and wanted to take a picture because he felt he owed it to her. And it wasn't that he was opposed to the war or anything like that. It was just that his memory of the war, the thing that he wanted to tell me first, decades and decades later, was this, right? And there's a way in which the, the kind of public narratives of the war, right, are always going to be just completely at odds with the highly particular individual experience. You know, that goes for the, you know, sort of negative images of Vietnam, the more positive images of, of World War II and so on. When veterans come home, I think one of the things that you find is trying to talk about the war that you were a part of and how you feel about it sometimes can become an exercise in navigating your way through those kind of longstanding cultural images about war and archetypes that we have that, that never really quite capture individual experience. And how do those sort of depictions affect the way that citizens who are not veterans or served in the military interact with not only veterans, but also broader politics, like foreign affairs politics and, and things like that? Sure, sure. I mean, well, I, I talked about the sort of narrative simplicity of the raid and, and, and how our politicians have leaned on, on the, the romance of the special operator, right, in, in, in selling their own policies or or innovating discussion of their own policies, really, because what's to say about, you know, if you think I, I don't have a serious counterterrorism policy, ask Osama bin Laden. So there's that on the on the policy level. I think it does inform how we how we think about war and the decisions that are made. Also, on a more personal level, I mean, you know, think of the idea of like the trope of the the, the broken veteran, right? This is something that I've encountered very directly. I remember meeting somebody in a bar, and they told me that all Iraq veterans were going to snap after. 10 years. You know, I'd been back three, so I guess I had seven at that point. I mean, I've, I've, I've encountered in, in the job market, right? You know, my current position at, at Fairfield University, uh, I think the fact that I'm a veteran is, is seen very much as a, as a plus in, in our Master's of Fine Arts program. Uh, we have about a third of the program is veterans. But when I was applying for jobs, there were two places where I was told to my face that being a veteran was a negative, right? Uh, which is, you know, illegal, but uh, but that didn't occur to the folks on the on the search committee uh, that they maybe shouldn't tell me that. So those kind of images affect people both in you know kind of the broader political debates and in in very direct and personal ways sometimes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that divide between civilians and service members. At one point, you note the difference between the United States, where there is a pretty stark divide between civilians and service members. I think it's been called, you know, a warrior caste is what what some have called it. And countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, where there actually isn't a neat division between civilians and soldiers. Yeah. So it's funny because I live in New York, right? And because there's such a a geographic component to who enters the Marine Corps. It was funny, like in, in 2010, 2011, I used to meet people all the time who would tell me that I was the first person who'd served that they'd met, which is crazy. You know, like the wars had been going on for a while at that point. And, you know, so oftentimes you'd encounter this idea that, um, you know, if you joined the military, it must have been because, you know, you didn't have any other options or, you know, because of the poverty draft, uh, so-called poverty draft, which doesn't really track with, you know, what we know about the demographics of the military, but I think was a kind of satisfying narrative for some people uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's funny because when I talk about the division, you know, a friend of mine reached out and he said, you know, you're always talking about the sort of division between the citizen and soldier and sort of how few people are engaged, but he's like, in my community, like, Everybody knows somebody who is at war, right? And it's like, yeah, but 
you're you're from one of those like rural towns where everybody does go. And that's not the case in much of America. There are little pockets that are deeply invested in this. And then, you know, pretty big swaths of the country where it's much, much more rare. And I don't think that's a situation we're going to get out of. Sometimes people talk about, you know, oh, should we have a, a, a draft, a national draft, right? Would that solve some of the issues? I don't necessarily know that it would, especially given the way that we wage war now, right? We're not, we're not using even, you know, the kind of large deployments of conventional forces in the volunteer military that we have, let alone, you know, using everybody that we'd, we would have if we had a draft. So I think the divide is related to, you know, the small number, but I think more importantly, the divide is related to how little we ask the fellow Americans uh, and of our politicians when it comes to war making, right? And how much we have made conscious choices that allow these wars to disappear out of view. One way that I guess the wars don't necessarily disappear out of view, but something that you write about is the pageantry of military worship. And you, your writing is really digestible and it's not very long, but it is also very dense. And I kind of want to give our listeners an example of that. The sentence that I was just quoting from, you write, quote, the pageantry of military worship sucks energy away from the obligations of citizenship. That's not even the whole sentence that I'm reading, but let's just sort of start to unpack that, um, if you don't mind. So what is, in your view, the pageantry of military worship? So I'll tell you a story that I, that I tell in the book. In World War I, one of the great heroes of the war was Charles White Whittlesey. He, sort of interesting guy, Williams grad, who was extremely idealistic, believed in the kind of rhetoric that Wilson, you know, was using to, to justify American entry into the war. And so he joined and he found himself commanding a battalion in what was known as the melting pot division, which was where all of the, you know, all of these different immigrants, a lot of immigrants from Eastern European nations and, and Jewish immigrants were all thrown together. And they went overseas and his unit got cut off and completely surrounded by the Germans. And they demanded that he surrender and he refused, right? He refused day after day after day. And they ran out of supplies. They ran out of bandages. They were, they were stripping bandages from the dead so they could use on the living. And he kept his men fighting and he kept them together until eventually their encirclement was broken. And he was awarded the Medal of Honor and he was one of the most lauded soldiers of the war, extremely famous. And yet, after World War I, every seeming ideal that he had thought he had fought for, none of it really seemed to come to fruition. The kind of Wilsonian ideals were not exactly instantiated in the peace. There was brutal rise in racial violence. After World War I, you had the Red Summer. You had Black Americans who had served being lynched because of their service, right? A Black black man in a uniform was making a claim on his nation that, that white supremacists couldn't stand. You had anti-immigrant sentiment. You had the first racial quota laws. And when Whittlesey did do public appearances, because he started to sort of refrain from public appearances, he would he would show up on behalf of immigrants and immigrants' rights and speak about the importance of that and what immigrants offered America. And he went to the tomb, the burial of the tomb of the unknown soldier. He was one of the pallbearers. And it was this incredible, over-the-top extravaganza of, you know, adulation for the American soldier and the Metropolitan Opera sent a quartet that's singing hymns about how the soldier is like Christ because he dies for an ideal. And Whittlesey, after serving as the pallbearer, turns to one of his friends, another Medal of Honor recipient, and says, I shouldn't have come. And two weeks later, he books a ship for Havana and after setting his affairs in order, gets on the ship and in the night slips over the side killing himself in a way that, that ensured that no one would ever be, ever be able to recover his body. No one would be able to, to afford him the kind of honors that the, the unknown soldier had been afforded. And when the story is told, 
oftentimes it's told as a story of PTSD and, you know, his war experience haunting him and survivor's guilt and, and so many other things. But when I hear about Whittlesey and I think about the things that he was doing before that, it's very difficult for me to disentangle how he must have felt at that time from the way in which as he is being lauded beyond belief, everything that he thought he had fought for and that his heavily immigrant battalion had died for was being abandoned. And even the sorts of men who had filled his battalion were being reviled in public life while an abstract image of the soldier was being glorified. And the second part of the sentence that that I talked about um, was, you know, how that pageantry of military worship sucks away from the from the obligations of citizenship. What, in your view, are some of the obligations of citizenship that are affected by that? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think that um, there's a kind of frustration that can curdle into into resentment when people come home. You know, there's this sort of sense of like, you know, I'm going to war and what I'm doing is extremely important and the civilians back home are just worthless, right? You know, there was this saying when I was in Iraq, you know, we're at war and America's at the mall, right? And the sense of it was, you know, we're doing the really important stuff and risking our lives and, and here where there's violence and death and destruction and Americans are just, you know, worthless consumers. And that that's satisfying while you're in right? Because it establishes a nice little neat moral hierarchy where you're at the top. But uh, I was thinking about that saying a couple of years later, I was at the mall and I was in a, in a store trying to figure out the difference between three to six M onesies and six M onesies. And I thought like, oh, we're at war and I'm at the mall. <laughs> and that was where I should be because my baby needed clothes, right? And I think there's a way in which we, we sometimes, as veterans, can sometimes discount the, the great importance and value and beauty of civilian life. I mean, it's funny. One of my, one of my friends, his diff most difficult challenge as a, as a leader in the military came not overseas, but when his, his reserve unit, when their deployment was canceled, because there were a bunch of guys who were really looking forward to like putting real life on hold, you know, sorry, babe, I can't deal with that. I'm at war. And, you know, the basic responsibilities and, and work of, of being a father, of being a member of a community, of, of trying to build up your community and, and being a part of civic organizations, being a part of American political life. Like those are beautiful and valuable things. They're the reason that they, if they're not beautiful and valuable, then no one should sign up to be in the military to risk your life for them. And it's a dangerous situation when you know, the military is one of the only institutions of American life that people actually respect. And I think we need to have a more capacious sense of service and what service to America means. And you you talk about the, I don't want to say diminishing morale within the military, because I don't really want to, you know, put, put words in anybody's mm -hmm. mouth. But you talk about that, especially, you know, when we think about that in light of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think a lot of people are witnessing what a sort of poisoned society does to a military right now, maybe in Russia and Ukraine and how the Russian military is performing. And mm -hmm. some analysts have connected that to the the poisons of Russian society infecting their way into the Russian military, despite their supposed technological and numerical superiority. I was just wondering if you could talk about what you see as the diminishing morale in the U.S. military and how that's sort of reflective of American society. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very funny. Like there has been among some people, a kind of fetishization of authoritarianism and strongman leaders, right. And kind of the, you're talking about the pageantry of military life. I mean, I remember when Ted Cruz was, Senator Cruz was, was sharing this video comparing a Russian army ad versus a U.S. army ad. And he said like, uh, you know, he tweeted out, holy crap perhaps a woke emasculated military is not the best idea, right? And the idea was like, because in Russian military ads, they're like very manly looking men being manly. And because the military is interested in recruiting a broad and wide and diverse base of people, his assumption was that, you know, that would be reflected in our military performance, which is an incredibly dumb thing to think, right? 
And, you know, I mean, it's an old thing. George Keenan thought that uh, in 1940 thought that uh, authoritarian states would pr- produce better soldiers too, and it didn't you know didn't pan out. Authoritarian states are weak; they're not willing to have the kind of self analysis and 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 rigorous self criticism that actually over time makes us stronger and better, and they allow rot to fester. And so I think that that kind of that kind of temptation is I mean it's just, it's it's farcical. I mean, it would be more comic if it wasn't a senator taking it seriously, right? A senator with presidential ambitions taking it seriously because, you know, if, 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 if we start convincing ourselves that sort of buffoonish displays of aggressive masculinity are the same as actual toughness and professionalism and skill, uh, that will be very, very bad for U.S. national security uh, and for the U.S. in, in general. Right. And uh, in case listeners can't tell by this point, the book covers just so many topics that are really, really pressured to current, you know, societal discourse in the United States. But a lot of this book is about the exercise of power, be it military or political. And you recount one story in the book about the late major Ian Fishback, um, who's really an extraordinary person for many reasons. But you tell one very specific story. I was wondering if you could recount that for our listeners. Sure. So he was in a region of Iraq where there were sort of fault line between Kurds and Sunni tribesmen, and there was a lot of distrust. You know, Sunni tribesmen were distrustful of the Kurds and felt that they wanted to push them off the you know the land that they'd grown up on. And the Kurds were distrustful of the Sunnis and angry at them because the Sunnis had been uh, put there after Saddam Hussein had gassed the Kurds, um, and then he sort of moved in Sunnis uh, to that region. And at one point during the deployment, there was a mortar strike that killed soldiers. And Fishback had a sense of which tribe was responsible, and he he called in the sheikh, and he could have probably targeted that sheikh if he had wanted to, right? And this is a guy who probably did have some blood on his hands in the past. Fishback had a sense that he, he didn't think that the guy had ordered that strike. It was probably more case that he, he probably knew who did, but wasn't willing to kind of exert his authority to, to try and punish that person or certainly not turn him in because that would undermine his own authority. So instead of relying on, you know, the use of American military might, he tried to work for a more political solution, diplomatic solution, right? Which is a very deliberate choice. I mean, had he used violence, it probably would have felt more satisfying. It also probably in the long term wouldn't have worked out particularly well for that region, right? And would have uh, caused more violence uh, in the long term and probably caused more losses. And it was a sort of thing that he, he, he often sort of found in special forces, which had been used a lot for direct action, right? They're supposed to be the sort of uh, warrior diplomats, right? But we use them for, for a lot of violence in, in Afghanistan in the first decade of, uh, of this century. And, you know, at one point he was, he was in Iraq and he had a, a team sergeant who, you know, had no interest in coin, no interest in, in this sort of softer approach. And this guy wanted to do like a, you know, a thing where they were going after car thieves and, and Fishback didn't want to do it because uh, he didn't see any purpose to it. He didn't see how it was related to their mission there. And the guy was like, sir, you're a coward. And then later, there was a mission that Fishback wanted to do, which entailed, well, basically going into a sort of dangerous area and meeting with local leaders and, you know, drinking tea and trying to establish some sort of line of outreach to um, uh, to local leaders. And his team sergeant didn't want to do it. And he said, sir, you're being reckless. You know, and Fishpack was like, look, you know, either, either I'm a coward or I'm reckless, but I can't be both. So what's, what's the real issue here? Oh, is it that in one of them you get to go in helicopters and shoot guns and that's cool. And the other one, you're just drinking tea. Well, it's like at that point, he'd seen far too much death and destruction to have any kind of tolerance for, you know, any kind of adrenaline junkie stuff. And yet... I think that those 
more political solutions that are interested in, you know, what's it like on the ground here? What are the possible consequences of violence, right? Where should we show restraint? Where, where could not showing restraint lead to, to worse things down the road? Those are very difficult decisions. It's difficult to know what's going to happen, what might change. Whereas, you know, if you're going to use a violent solution, you can always tell yourself that you did something, right? Even if in the long run, it makes things worse. In a lot of these essays, as I mentioned earlier, you connect the details and personal accounts with broader broader themes and, and policy decisions. I want to talk for a minute about how do you do that when you set out to write some of these things? I mean, you have a few chapters on what you would call your quote unquote process, but I'm just curious how you, how you set about writing something like that. <laughs> it's different at different times. Maybe you have to take your full course to understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, some of these, some of these essays involve a lot of research, right. And a lot of historical investigation. And, you know, I think that oftentimes when there's something that troubles me, right, or that I find compelling, you know, Ian Fishback's story, or, you know, the story of, of Charles White Whittlesey, well, that's a story that I tell in tandem with two other stories, the stories of, of one Iraqi interpreter who made it to the United States, became an American citizen and went back to Iraq as a soldier, and another Iraqi interpreter who served with Marines, who served in combat, served bravely, and then was stuck in Iraq trying to get a special immigrant visa and not able to get it through because of our lack of concern, our broken immigration system, and our fear-mongering about, about immigrants. And those three different stories sort of spoke to me, right? And so it was a matter of sitting with them for a long time, thinking about them, talking about them with friends, and trying to figure out the connections between things. I think that, that, that oftentimes there are lessons to our present in our history. There are ways that we can kind of trace the arguments and, and, and ideas that we're currently working with. You know, when I, I have a long essay on the, on, the, on the citizen soldier, and I talk about the concept of that uh, through American history from the founding to the present day as a way of trying to think through, you know, what the relationship is now. And so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of conversations, a lot of research, a lot of reading, and a lot of time until I feel like, you know, I've, I've got a handle on what I want to say. And, and I've, I've, I've got a, a couple of stories that feel really vital, really alive, really powerful to me that, that hopefully would be powerful to the reader as well. Is there anything that surprised you when you reread these essays from, you know, in some cases over 10 years ago? Did you notice any maybe changes in your writing or anything like that? I think my relationship to the wars has changed and that has expressed itself in the writing. And I think there's a more complex approach, but at the end of the day, I think I'm still, I'm still the same person, right? With the same kind of wary idealism. And, you know, I, I, I mentioned at the, in the prologue, there's a Derek Walcott speech where he says, you know, if you shatter a vase, the love that reassembles the fragments is greater than the love, which appreciated its symmetry when it was whole. And I think that, you know, in some ways, my more simplistic notions and simplistic idealism about America, about the military, you know, have indeed been shattered. But I don't think the idealism is gone. I think it's just a tougher and more valuable thing, or at least I hope so. And, and the work of these essays over the past 10 years has, in many ways, been my process of trying to take those pieces and, 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 and put them back together. So this... This podcast will run on the Friday before Memorial Day, and you write in, at certain points in the in the book about you know your thoughts on Memorial Day and, and that it should be a quiet reflection in a in a time of peace. But you know, if someone were to have read this book and and thought you know how should I as maybe a non-veteran or just you know quote unquote ordinary citizen reflect on Memorial Day, what, what would you tell them? Memorial Day, I always think about the people I knew who died. And I think about what they died for. And I think about what kind of country we should be to deserve those people. And so I think that it helps on Memorial Day not to think of it as an abstraction, but as very specific people. 
All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Allies, Rational Security, Chatter, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.